So the message for today is, do miracles matter? Do miracles matter? I think in this day and age, there's a lot of questions around uh, the supernatural. Uh, does God still interact with us today? I remember going through Google, and I was reading different articles about miracles, and there's some people that are very convinced that miracles were for the Bible in the Old and New Testament, and after that, God has not revealed himself or manifested himself in any, um, in any way that's beyond our understanding And as I was reading through scripture, I kind of asked myself the question, does God still use miracles today? Um, As you know, we've been going through different topics of church history. Uh, We're kind of on the second and third century, and I just kind of wanted to sit on the the third century for right now. Uh, There's a gentleman by the name of, of Gregory Taumaturgus, and in history, he's a He's one bishop that was kind of known for miracle working. And uh, this, is, this is about the, the third century here. And he originally came from Pontus, and he was converted by the writings of Origen. And he became the bishop of Neo-Caesarea. And he was known for his power to heal people. And so people would apparently bring the sick um, to this man, and he would perform a miracle, and they would be healed. Uh, he was also known for receiving visions and apparently uh, he received visions from the apostles and uh, from the Virgin Mary. And um, this is just basically what's written in the history textbooks. And so it's kind of interesting to see, um, to read about this man's testimony. There was a time when there was some flooding that took place in Neo-Caesarea. And apparently um, his prayers redirected the flooding uh, away from where the people were. And so this is something that he was also known for. And he was very well known for his missionary work as well. And he was known, um, basically his mindset was that the pagans have these festivals and lots of people come and they're having a fun time. As Christians, we need to have more of a fun time. And so he would have a bigger party than those, uh, the pagans that were having festivals. And apparently it drew a lot of people into the church. And so very interesting man, very interesting methods. Um, nevertheless, it is documented this man performed miracles. And so what I wanted to do was share a few Bible passages about miracles and have this discussion with you. So in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the author writes, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. And so the author writes, there is this great gift of salvation that God wants to give to us. And God confirms that salvation with one, his word, and two, his works. Now the dictionary defines miracles um, this way. A miracle is an event which the forces of nature, including the natural powers of man, cannot of themselves produce and which must therefore be referred to a supernatural agency. And then the theologians like to put some guidelines around uh, miracles, and so I thought I would share a few of them with you. Four guidelines. One, as a general rule, the miracles of the Bible era were done in the presence of a multitude of credible witnesses, even hostile ones. And so Jesus, as he was performing miracles, oftentimes he would do it in public. Many people saw it, heard it, um, witnessed it for themselves, and uh, obviously there were some people that didn't like that as well. Secondarily, genuine miracles are not slow, progressive processes. Rather, they produce instantaneous effects 
note, and straightway he received his sight. Mark chapter 10, 52. This is in reference to the blind. And immediately his feet and ankle bones were received, uh, received strength. And this is in regards to the lame man. And so the miracle comes and then it happens. Rather than this uh, prayer happens, uh, let's say there's a baby and uh, the baby has jaundice. Uh, the pastor comes and prays for the baby, and three weeks later, after the baby's been in the sunshine, oh, God performed a miracle, and then John has gone. Like, that's not what they're talking about. They're saying instantaneous results. Number three, true miracles must be subject to sense perception. The water that Jesus turned into wine could be tasted. Thomas could feel the prints in the hands of the resurrected Christ, and the restored ear of the high priest servant could be seen. The wonders of the Bible were objective demonstrations not subjective speculations. Fourthly, actual signs must be independent of secondary causes. By this, we mean there must be no possible way to explain the miracle in a natural fashion. No outside uh, force creating a, a result. So these are some guidelines to miracles. Now, in the Bible, there are some improper uses of miracles. And I want to talk about that for a little bit. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, it says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And so uh, there's this idea that um, if you do something that's out of the ordinary, it's very convincing. If you say, ah, I've just um, raised somebody from the dead, then somebody acknowledges that person has power that I don't understand. What else does that person know? What else can that person do? And uh, in the end times, Jesus says, this will happen, and people are going to use this for wrong rather than right. Not only that, uh, I found an interesting um, note here in Psychology Today, and this is back in 1987. So it says, uh, those who practice Christian science, Mormonism, Catholicism, transcendental meditation, Yoga, psychic healing, Scientology, New Age crystal healing, etc., 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 claim the same type of signs as the, as the Pentecostals. In fact, more than 20 million Americans annually report mystic experiences. And so there are supernatural things that happen outside of Christianity. Um, I believe in Haiti, uh, supernatural occurrences are, are the norm. And I remember... Um, I was sitting in a taxi in India, and as we were driving by, it was about uh, 10, 30, 11 o'clock p.m., and there's this woman that's kind of like staggering around the road, and she's not drunk, and she's just staggering. And I look at my interpreter, I'm like, is she okay? He's like, oh, yes, she's possessed. And then we just kept driving. And I was like, um, do you want to stop by and pray for her or something? I, I don't know what to do in that situation. He's like, oh, it happens all the time. I'm like... Okay, so there, there are supernatural occurrences that happen outside of Christianity that are regularly documented, and the reality is things happen that we cannot explain. And so when it comes to the Bible where God says, I want to perform a miracle so that you learn to trust me, the question is, how does this t- take place in a constructive way, in a biblical way? And so there's a few stories that I want to read through. First, I want to talk about a group of people that Jesus tries to minister to that um, are looking for something out of the ordinary. They're looking for the supernatural, and yet God, excuse me, and yet Jesus almost steps back and he's hesitant to show those miracles and those signs to these people. I kind of want to share a few verses with you. In John chapter 2, verse 23 to 25, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, 
Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and he had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. And so here a group of people, they see the works of Jesus and they want Jesus to, um, they want a deeper connection with Jesus, if you will. And Jesus kind of looks into their hearts and makes this divine judgment that these, these people are not ready for a deep connection relationship with me. And so he almost steps back and he says, no, I'm not going to commit myself to you. And when I read this passage in John, I kind of ask myself the question, why does Jesus do this? I would think if there are people that see his miracles and they want to spend time with him, that would be a good thing. Here's another passage. In John chapter 6, verse 30, it says, Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? So here's a few chapters later, same group of people, they want more signs. And they're like, Jesus, we know that you performed signs back then, but we want to see it again. What else can you do? And to this, Jesus' basic response is no. Now, okay, from John chapter 6 all the way to John chapter 10, which the next slide I'm going to go to, Jesus has been performing miracles. He feeds the 5,000 with uh, five loaves of bread and two fishes. He restores the sight to the blind. He even raises Lazarus from the dead. So actually, this is past chapter 10. But Jesus has been performing miracles his whole ministry. And he gets different kinds of response from different groups of people. And this group of people that I'm talking about right now, basically, there's this insatiable desire for the supernatural. And it's kind of like, entertain us. That's kind of like the idea. As you read through the story, you get the idea that regardless of how much Jesus does, they don't believe. And yet, they want Jesus to do more. And so, what Jesus does is, he responds to this group of people in John chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to go through a few passages with you. John chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 22. John chapter 10, and we're going to look at verse 22. And Jesus kind of highlights a few things. And he tells this parable, this uh, mysterious story, if you will, as he often does. And he shares a story because he wants the hearers to think, reflect, and do some heart searching. In John chapter 10, reading verse 22, starting in verse 22, and I'm just going to read to 25. And what you can do is, as I'm narrating the story, if you want a broader context of the story, um, I invite you to read Uh, basically from verse 7 and all the way to um, 39. But in narration, I'm just going to start in verse 22. So here's how the story starts. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Now, in the previous verse that we read in John chapter 6, the people said, do something to prove your divinity. Now, in this passage, they're saying, just tell us outright. Use your word. Are you really the Christ? Are you the Son of God? Are you divine? Are you the promised Messiah? Are you from heaven? And Jesus looks at them, and he basically says, I have showed you with my miracles. I've showed you with my works, and you do not believe. 
And here, Jesus makes this incredible connection. He says, in order to accept me, you must accept my word and you must accept my works. You must accept my word, you must accept my works. And this is why this is important. Jesus further goes on in verse 30, and he finally says it plainly. Verse 30, I and my Father are, how many? One. Okay. Now when he says, I and my Father are one, basically what Jesus is saying is, anytime you think a divine attribute belongs to God the Father, that is me. Right? Also connect the idea of Jesus with whatever divine attribute you think of. When you think anything that is beyond understanding, anything that is divine, anything that is powerful, anything that is glorious, also attribute that to Jesus. And notice what the hearers, how they respond. Verse 31, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And so they hear this and they think, this is the most blasphemous thing we have ever heard. Who can be the same as God? Who can be the same as God? They want to kill Jesus. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man, make yourself God. Now listen to what the Jews are saying. They're saying, You do good works, but we just can't accept your word. You do good works, we like that, but we just can't accept your word. You know, if I reflect upon a more modern day application of this, there are so many people who would never say that Jesus is a bad guy. They wouldn't say Jesus is a bad guy. You know, uh, in 2003, uh, excuse me, 2005 is when I first came to Melbourne. And for the first year that I was here, I did surveys almost every single day outside of Saturday and Sunday. I would go to the State Library and I would go to Melbourne Uni. And I had a series of questions that I would ask people. First question, in your opinion, is there a God? Um, Second question, do you think there's life after death? And then it just kind of progressively went down and I started asking questions about Jesus. Do you think Jesus was a good man? Um, Do you think he was the son of God? And most people would respond, we don't think that God exists. And then you keep going down, um, do you think Jesus was a good man? Almost everybody says Jesus is a good man. It was, I, I don't think I ever heard one person say that Jesus is not a good man. They might have said, oh, he was a fictitious character, like he didn't exist. But nobody would dare say he's a bad guy. I just thought that was the most interesting thing ever. And so most people will, deni- will not deny the work of Jesus. But when it comes to the claims and the word of Jesus, that's where it gets challenging. Because Jesus then says, I'm more than a man. I'm more than a teacher. I'm more than a rabbi. I am the Son of God and everything that, with everything that implies. And that's where it gets challenging, right? And there are different religions that have wars over this very issue. Jesus is a good guy. He's a, um, he's a man of God, but he is not God, right? Wars over this issue. And so here comes Jesus. And what he's challenging humanity to do is trust his word and trust his works. Now I find that people outside of Christianity don't struggle with the works of Jesus. They struggle with the word of Jesus. But when it comes to inside of Christianity, I find that people struggle 
not with the words of Jesus, because nobody would dare say in the church, Jesus is not the Son of God. Right? Everyone says, oh yeah, we believe in Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's my Savior even. But when it comes to the works of Jesus, that's when it gets challenging. Because it's like, God, I know you want to work in my life, but, and then fill in the blank. Right? I know you can do great things, but, I know you've done it in the past, but what about in my life? So my question to you is this. Do you accept Jesus for all that he is? His word and his works. His word and his works. Notice what the disciples say of Jesus. When you look at the first epistle of John, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, this is the epistle, or this is the apostle John's testimony. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have this fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. John says, I saw the works of Jesus. I heard the word of Jesus. I felt it. I experienced it in my own life. And you can experience the exact same thing. And so I'm inviting you to enter into that fellowship. I'm inviting you to enter into that fellowship. John is saying, God wants to work in a very supernatural way in your life. He wants us to experience his word, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, in our lives. There's another verse here that's kind of a supporting text. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There's a very similar text in Mark chapter 16, verse 17 to 20, if you're interested in checking it out. So over and over again in Scripture, God is saying the works of God confirm the words of God. You know, I don't know if, I don't know how many people here have um, read Jin Ha's uh, blogs that she, she posts up. And in this last one, she kind of shared about how she had a miscarriage uh, back in December. And uh, we've been trying to have a second child in our family. And um, Mike has been a blessing. We want to give him a friend, whether it's a boy or a girl. We just we thought, oh, it's good to have a second child. And, uh, you know, the first time when Micah came around, we, he was actually an uh, unexpected gift, if you will. And we just thought, oh, having kids, easy. You just do what you do, and then out comes baby nine months later. And I thought, this is going to be easy. And... Uh, so we started trying uh, a, a while ago now, and maybe six, just over six months now, and Jin Ha was pregnant, and we thought, oh, this is great. Like, this is going to be a great experience, and pregnancy second time around, we're ready, we're prepared, and then miscarriage, and we thought, man, like, why did that happen? And we went to the doctor, is there something that we're doing? Do we need to just be in better health, or what happens, or, or what happened? And the doctor basically said, listen... Um, actually, the, the, the percentage of miscarriages is quite high, and it's completely normal. Just 
try again. It's normal. And I just thought, man, that just that doesn't seem right. So two months passed, three months passed, four months passed, five months passed, and no baby. And we're kind of thinking, why, why is this happening? How come, how come we can't have a second child here? Well, a couple Saturdays ago, uh, we had a few people from church at our home. And after dinner, it's about 9.30, 10 o'clock, and Jinha um, is on the ground, like she collapsed on the ground. And uh, I look over into the living room, and I kind of check, and I kind of realize, hey, like, that's not normal. Like, my wife is on the ground, and she's like, I can't breathe right now. I'm like, oh, that's not good if you can't breathe. And she's like, my back hurts. I can't breathe. This is, this is horrible. And so uh, taking in the car and driving to the hospital, and she's two minutes later, she's like, oh, I'm okay. Like, what do you mean you're okay? You're on the ground just like 10 minutes ago. You couldn't breathe. And she's like, no, I'm okay. We can go home. Long story short, many uh, like few trips to the hospital, hours of waiting in the ER, and we realized that Jinha has um, gallbladder stones. And she went into surgery. She had five gallbladder stones inside of her gallbladder, and there are two of them about that big. Um, and then she had five more gallbladder stones inside of her um, bile duct, which is the tube that's connected to the gallbladder. And one of the, there was another stone about that same size that was blocking um, the, the way to the liver and the way to the gallbladder. And basically, um, they say that uh, gallbladder stone pain is worse than childbirth, and Jinha confirmed it, and she basically said, that hurt more than childbirth. And I just thought to myself, how much can this poor woman take? Like, she's experienced both of those things. <laughs> and I was just, ugh. And as she's, um, as she's in surgery, and when you're waiting for a loved one in surgery, it's the worst thing to wait in a hospital waiting room because you're just kind of like, what's going to happen? Is everything okay? And the doctors apparently told Jinha, oh, it's a two-hour operation. And then hour number four, I'm kind of panicking now. I'm like, hey, what's going on with my wife? And there's almost a sense of fear and uncertainty and, oh, no, what happens if, what happens if she dies in surgery? And it's just, it's easy to go worst-case scenario. Like, anytime that you, anytime you're ignorant of what's supposed to happen, that's just worst-case scenario that's possible in my head. And as I was thinking, I was reflecting upon this past six months of our lives. Miscarriage tried to have a baby, couldn't have a baby, and I just, it dawned on me, if she were five months pregnant right now, this would be horrible. Like, you cannot go into surgery if you've got, if you're pregnant for five months. You can't use painkillers. You can't, like, you just, it complicates things infinitely. And I remember sitting there in the chair thinking, man, thank God that she's not pregnant right now, because if she were, like, I don't know what would happen to her, I don't know what would happen to the baby, and it would just be, ah, it would just be so horrible. And I remember this, just the sense of, you know what? God's hand is in our lives, and if his hand were not in our lives, I don't know what I would do. Like, I honestly, I have no idea what I would do. And there was just prayerful moment where I just thought, God, thank you for the way that you've been leading our lives for the past six months. Yeah, we want to have a baby, but... um, I'm actually very happy with this scenario. I'm very happy with this scenario. And she came out of surgery. I remember seeing her in her hospital bed, and I just uh, was so happy to see her. And I just, ah, so many feelings of of, of thankfulness to God and and the way that he's worked. And for me, those are the little miracles that just kind of confirm God's love, his goodness, his presence, his desire to interact with us in our lives. And um, it was just a very powerful moment. 
I want to uh, conclude with the passage that I opened with in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. God wants us to experience salvation. And the greatest way that he can communicate those things is through his word, through his work. I invite you to seek, to search with your heart. Allow the Spirit of God to speak to your heart. Be amazed at God for who he is, for what he does, and submit. Follow God's word, his way, his truth. You will find life eternal and life abundant. May God bless you.